Good evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Uh, this is uh, the inaugural SAN lecture at the LSE, and uh, it is the new, it's the first lecture in a new and exciting series, which will hopefully take place annually. And the series is organized by Stickert and the Department of International Development here at the LSE. And the ultimate aim of this series is to extend recent debate on issues and themes which are close and inspired by Professor Sun's work. And uh, I would like to thank you all for coming and especially to thank our first speaker tonight, who's uh, Professor Joe Siglitz. And I will give the mic over to my colleague, Professor Calder from the International, Depart International Development Department, who will tell you more about Joe's work. Well, it's actually an enormous privilege uh, to be, uh, and, and actually rather daunting, to be asked to present two of the most important intellectuals of our time. <laughs> um, and um, actually, I was thinking it's rather unnecessary because the fact that this hall is so full and the fact that so many people wanted to get in shows that they don't actually need any introduction. <laughs> so I think what's important to say really is first of all why we're holding these lectures, that they are a way of taking forward, thinking about, debating and discussing the thought of Amartya Sen. And um, I think what one can say, and, and I think the other thing to say is very important, is that nobody could be more suitable than Joe Stiglitz to give the first Amartya Sen lecture. Um, so just as by way of very brief introduction, I don't know where Amartya actually is. Is he in the room? <laughs> <laughs> so Amartya Sen has taught his career, academic career has spanned India, the UK, the US. As many people here know, he taught at the LSE in the 1970s and 80s. He was Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. And I suppose if I try to think what's really important for us to be talking about, I mean, it seems to me what so has been so crucial is his the huge centrality in his work of what it is to be human and what it is to be free and the many different ways of being human and free and how we have to understand development in that way. And of course, as, as Oriana said, his emphasis on public reasoning as opposed to instrumental rationality on moral and public reasoning and of course today we're going to talk about another very important aspect of his work, India. <laughs> um, if I now turn to Joe Stiglitz, like Amartya, he's taught at many different universities. He was president of Clinton's Council of Economic Advisor. He was chief economist at the World Bank. And like Amartya, he has profoundly challenged political and economic orthodoxy and tried to extend our understanding of the world in a way that benefits or helps us to help the most deprived people in the world. And his work, is, his famous work for which he won the Nobel Prize is on information asymmetries and why markets don't function efficiently. He's now the chairman of the Committee of Global Thought at Columbia University 
and he um, writes about globalization, about inequality, about climate change. And I think the only other thing I really want to say before handing over to Professor Stiglitz is just that I just think it's so important for the world that we have these two people at a moment when we're going through a very profound economic and political crisis and that we have two people who can help us shine a light on what it means for ordinary people. Well, it's a real pleasure to be back here at LSE and to be uh, here to uh, give the first lecture in honor of my good friend, uh, Amartya. Uh, our friendship uh, goes back uh, a long way. I think at least uh, I remember my first visit to India, uh, to Delhi, I think it was in 1967, uh, 45 years ago. Um, I, I won't uh, describe all the uh, uh, events of that, that visit, but I, I do want to say is that over those 45 years, uh, Amartya's had enormous intellectual influence on me. In fact, one of my first uh, papers was a, uh, a comment uh, or grew out of his uh, earliest book on the choice of technique, which um, I commend to you, those of you who, th those old issues are still important and, and uh, even though they've gone out of fashion. Um, one of the uh, uh, nice things about having a lecture series in honor of uh, Amartya Sen is that there are so many topics uh, that one can lecture on, and that means you will have a, a rich series uh, going forward. And uh, it made my life easy because there were many things I could have uh, I, I could have talked about. Um, as uh, Mary pointed out, he he really has expanded our horizon. Um, books like uh, Development is Freedom, uh, which um, and his concern about uh, inclusive growth. And I'm going to try to take up a couple of the themes that are in, in some ways related uh, to, to those that he's talked about, um, but hopefully in a, in a somewhat uh, different direction. Uh, and I'm going to talk uh, uh, about uh, creating a, a learning uh, society. Um, the uh, three themes underlying underlie my uh, the discussion. Um, successful and sustained growth requires creating a learning society, uh, and that's especially true in the 21st century as we move to a knowledge economy. Uh, the second thing is that uh, an open democratic society is more conducive to the creation of a learning society. And the third is that successful and sustained democratic growth must be inclusive. So I hope I, I'll, I'll, by, by uh, touching on both the importance of democracy and touching on the importance of inclusiveness, uh, highlight two of the themes that, that Amartya has uh, talked about very extensively. Um, let me begin by talking a little bit about what I'm mean by a learning society uh, and, and the role that it has, in particular it's played in the economic transformations of the last two centuries. Uh, in, the, in the interpretation I'm putting forward here, the transformation to learning societies that occurred around 1800 
for Western economies, and more recently for those in Asia, appears to have had a far, far greater impact on human well-being than improvements in allocative efficiency or resource, resource accumulation. And one should try to understand that for uh, more than 2,000 years, or well, well longer than 2,000 years, there were almost no increases in standards of living. Uh, the, the, uh, the conditions under which most people lived were really very difficult. Uh, uh, they spent most of their time struggling to make the basic necessities of life. And all of that has changed in the last 200 years, and we sometimes forget that and for, take it for granted. But that, in fact, we spend relatively, uh, 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 most of us spend relatively small fraction of our time, a few hours a week, uh, meeting the basic necessities of life. We have a lot of choice about what we do beyond that. Um, and that most of that increases, th th those increases in our living standards come not from increases in capital accumulation, but actually from uh, changes in technology, in learning. And so that's, in, in a fundamental sense, we have to focus on, on uh, improvements in uh, 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 our knowledge base. However, information, knowledge, is fundamentally different from ordinary goods. And the consequence is that markets on their own are not efficient in promoting innovation. In fact, the policies that promote a transformation to a learning society are markedly different than those advocated by the Washington Consensus. Uh, in fact, from the perspective of creating a learning society, those policies may, in fact, be very counterproductive. Uh, so at the same time, of course, the, the two issues cannot be fully uh, separated. So let me go back to a little review of, of uh, some old economics uh, old by now, it was actually quite new when I started uh, my, my graduate courses. Uh, and that is uh, since Solo, Solo's work in 1957 uh, argued that uh, the most important determinant of growth is technological change. Uh, this was an idea, of course, that was recognized earlier by Schumpeter, but Solo gave, uh, gave us the first quantification. So if that is the case, if most of what determines growth is is learning, is technological change, then it means that much of our attention ought to be focused on what promotes learning, what promotes technological change. In fact, it's remarkable how little of development economics is actually focused on that. Um, and this is even more important, as I say, it's important for developed and for developing countries. In the case of developing countries, um, the, the focus should be on the diffusion of knowledge from developed to developing countries. And it's even more important because what we've come to now recognize that what separates developing from developed countries is not just a gap in resources, but a gap in knowledge. So that's the first, I think, fundamental insight. The second one is that, at least since Arrow, um, we've recognized that markets by themselves do not yield efficiency in the production and dissemination of knowledge. 
And the reason for this is, for those of you who, who know about, uh, gone through a, a basic course in economics or public economics, is that knowledge is a public good. Um, the basic concept was put very forcefully by uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was the third president of the United States, where he said, he, he didn't use the word uh, uh, public good, uh, but he said knowledge was like a candle. When one candle likes another, uh, it doesn't diminish from the light of the first candle. So unlike if one person's sitting in a chair, another person can't sit in that chair. Uh, those, that's called non-rivalrous consumption. In the case of knowledge, it's very different. And the other thing is when you make an innovation, it has inevitably lots of spillovers, lots of externalities. Uh, when uh, the inventors of the laser, the people like the uh, 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 Turing, the Turing machine, they just transform our society and, and the benefits that arise from these emanate, uh, 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 affect all of our society. Moreover, there are some inherent uh, market imperfections that are associated with innovation uh, having to do with capital market imperfections, imperfect information, imperfect risk markets. Uh, I say they're inherent. I, can't, I don't have time to, today to explain the links, but, but they are uh, uh, inherent. So the bottom, uh, the upshot of all of this is the central question of growth and development should be what should governments do to promote growth through learning and te technological uh, progress. And this is a markedly different perspective than the standard question, which focuses on static efficiency, moving countries to the frontier or moving the frontier out through the accumulation of more resources. And the question is particularly salient because the two policies are often in conflict. Things that m might lead to more uh, efficiency in a static sense could actually impede learning. And the obvious example of that, uh, of the trade-offs between static and dynamics, is illustrated by our intellectual property system, which uh, if you, efficiency says that you should use information, disseminate information freely. But intellectual property is a system that tries to confine the use of knowledge, limit the use of knowledge, and creates an inefficiency. In fact, it even creates a monopoly, which is a, 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 an even greater source of inefficiency. What we've come to accept is that, or at least some people have come to accept the notion that it is worth accepting the inefficiency in the static sense for the dynamic benefits, for the learning benefits. There are, is a question about whether that in fact is true, whether we actually lose both statically and dynamically, but, but at least the, the concept is that, that the, uh, we understand that there is that trade-off. And that is actually true about a lot of the other policies that are part of the Washington Consensus. That those policies that may have been advocated for the purpose of increasing allocative efficiency, short-run productivity, may actually have a, uh, a negative effect on uh, learning and therefore on long-term uh, economic growth. Uh, well, uh, so the key uh, macroeconomic issue is, uh, when you approach this question from macroeconomic perspective, is what determines growth uh, and what is the relationship between growth and globalization. The orthodox view was that trade, foreign investment drives growth. 
The alternative view is that growth drives trade and investment. But of course, there's a two-way relationship, but the question is which of these uh, is more important, and the answer obviously has important uh, uh, policy implications. Well, one way of thinking about this is that trade, investment, global opportunity, the, the, these kinds of opportunities are universal. So if they were the driving force, then we would expect to see similar patterns everywhere, so long as governments didn't foreclose opportunities to take advantage of trade. But some economies have grown more than others. Uh, and in fact, if you look within countries, you see where there are no trade barriers, you see some regions of countries grow better than others, uh, and they face the same trade opportunities. And that suggests that there are some other forces that are really driving what's going on. I, I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them, but what I'm trying to emphasize in this lecture is that learning is at least one of the forces that has not gotten uh, enough attention. So, uh, and then if we look within countries, what we see is that there are large differences between average and best practices, suggesting that there are, even within a country, large scope for learning. And that's true both in developed and developing uh, countries. So, let me just try to uh, 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 recap. The standard theory is focused on comparative advantage, a one-time gain from liberalization, opening up markets, trying to get static allocative efficiency, whereas the theories that I'm trying to develop in this lecture focus on technology, the diffusion of technology from developed to less developed countries, diffusion within the country from the best practices to uh, others, uh, and the spillovers from one sector to another. And so what's important in this context is not static comparative advantage, uh, but really dynamic comparative advantage and the directions in which one ought to shape that dynamic comparative advantage, a question I won't be able to come to very much today. Those of you who've uh, uh, followed some of the debate about uh, uh, the issue of learning will know that I'm really talking about a variant of, of what is sometimes called the infant industry argument. Uh, which is based on economies of scale, that the efficient use, uh, uh, efficient learning requires losses during the first phase of a firm. And the problem is this serves as an entry barrier, putting develop country, developing countries at a disadvantage. The critics of the infant industry argument have said governments can't pick winners, infants never grow up, and there are better ways of providing assistance than protection. But there are some very uh, strong replies to these critics. The first is that almost every successful country has had industrial policies. In the case of the United States in the 19th century, we, uh, the government uh, was actually responsible for the development of telecommunications. Uh, first telegraph line was uh, laid down by the US government just like it was the determinant of the uh, telecommunications uh, in the 20, 20th century with the finance of the internet, which has really transformed our, our lives. Uh, I could go through the list, but if you look at what has transformed our, our society, our economy, it has really been uh, industrial policies. The real critic, critique of the critic that about picking winners is that the point of industrial policies is not to pick winners, but to identify externalities and other market failures. 
and to explain why it is that markets on their own won't have the right industrial structure. In fact, uh, we argue that learning by uh, doing itself provides little basis of industrial policy because uh, if you considered a two-product, two-country, two-product Ricardian world with, uh, say, Cobb-Douglas utility functions with one product with learning and the other stagnant, uh, what you would see is that the learning country would face uh, adverse terms of trade and the other country would get all the benefit, uh, would share in the benefit fully. So that there would be, uh, in terms of standard of living, there would actually be uh, uh, no disadvantage. So central to an understanding of the structure of learning within an economy and uh, across sectors is uh, uh, to understand that there are uh, 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 a lot of spillovers across uh, across the economy, and so what we. Uh, this is some joint work with uh, my colleague at Columbia, Bruce Greenwald. Uh, we argue uh, really for not an infant industry argument, but an infant economy argument, and that you want to structure the entire economy, thinking about where are our learning possibilities most uh, relevant and where are um, spillovers most important. And there are many processes, practices, and institutions that entail cross-learning or uh, cross uh, increases in productivity that cross sectors. Uh, and we listed here some examples uh, that, that uh, some of which apply to developed countries, but some apply to all countries: inventory control processes, labor management, uh, computerization, financial services. We argue that the industrial sector, broadly understood, including services, but not the agricultural sector, may not only exhibit a larger learning elasticity, that is to say that it uh, 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 responds, uh, uh, has more learning potential, but also more learning spillovers um, to other sectors, including to the rural agricultural sector. And therefore, it's desirable to encourage the industrial sector. Uh, the broad-based export subsidies that East Asia used was a, one way of doing it, and we argue was an important part of their success. One of the challenges today, and I'll come to talk about that in a second, is that the WTO has restricted the use of these subsidies. So this is an example of where we've embedded a certain model of the world into international agreements. International agreements saw the world in a very neoclassical framework where they didn't talk about learning. There was no learning. It was all focused on static efficiency. And so they were thinking about how to create, in fact, it was worse than that because it was static efficiency with perfect markets uh, and perfect risk markets. So it was really the WTO embeds a whole set of of economic beliefs that actually don't describe well the world. But one the implication relevant for this talk is that it restricts the use of industrial policies. Well, uh, we've argue, we argue that there are a whole set of characteristics of the industrial sector that uh, help explain why 
uh, it is more amenable to innovation. Uh, there are larger opportunities for taking advantage of returns to scale, and it's inherent in, in research that there are returns to scale. The firms are longer lived. Uh, uh, it's the basis of m more research. Uh, it's contributed to the development of a, of a robust financial sector. Um, the general implication of all this that is that the rate of productivity of increase in a society as a whole is related to the relative side of the industrial sector. And so that says that from a development point of view, it makes sense to, to encourage the industrial sector. So g give you one example of, of where this played out in a very dramatic way. Uh, in the 1960s, uh, at the uh, uh, in Korea after uh, the uh, Korea War uh, was over, uh, the World Bank and the IMF uh, advised Korea that on their their development strategy, basically they said they should focus on their comparative advantage, and their comparative advantage was growing rice, <laughs> and. Uh, Korea was not that interested in becoming the world's best rice grower. Uh, their view was that growing rice was not going to lead them to a high standard of living. Um, they didn't have uh, the advantage of uh, having ha heard this lecture, so they didn't know exactly why they, they believed what they did, but they, they sort of intuitively grasped that somehow becoming the best rice grower wasn't going to help the rest of their economy and wasn't going to lead their economy to grow. Uh, and they decided that they ought to become, uh, start to industrialize. And they were very strongly criticized by, uh, uh, by the West, by the United States, by, by the IMF and the World Bank. Um, but they went ahead anyway. And uh, we all know uh, the result of that, per capita income increased uh, eightfold. Um, their per capita income when they began this particular journey was actually lower than that of India. And uh, many of my friends from India, when they visited Korea in this particular point, came back extraordinarily depressed. Uh, and, and, you know, this, you know um, the... Um, so and 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 the reason was they the the it turned out that by focusing on industry they actually improved agriculture as well uh and that they what they learned in one sector had benefits for other sectors and uh now they're the 12th largest uh, industrial economy in the world and and uh um uh, uh, an enormously successful economy let me spend just a minute trying to explain why markets on their own fail, uh, don't, don't work in this, uh, uh, in this context. There are two ways of thinking about, uh, two, two kinds of uh, uh, models. One is where there are large learning spillovers, where the learning that one firm does spills over to others. Then, of course, when you're making decisions about R&D or, or how much to produce, where there's learning by doing, where the more you produce or the more you invest, there's more learning. When you make those decisions, you don't take into account the spillovers, the learning that others benefit from your learning. So you'll underinvest in learning. 
The other case is where there are no spillovers. But where there are no spillovers, there is, in a way, a natural monopoly. That is to say, if you learn more, you're at an advantage relative to others. It's a fixed sunk cost. And so there's a tendency to try to learn more and to become larger. But that means, of course, that markets where there, learn, there are no learning spillovers are going, not going to be competitive. And because they're not competitive, the size of the sector will be smaller, and therefore the benefits of learning will be smaller than it would be if, 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 if there weren't this uh, 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 monopoly. So whatever way, whether, they're, they, the, the, whether their uh, learning spills over or it doesn't, the markets won't be efficient. So that's why whenever there's learning, wherever, whenever there are these, uh, where, whenever R&D is important, markets will not work well. Well, it follows almost automatically from this that it's often when impose some subsidies, even if taxes are distortionary. And often subsidy leads to expansion of those sectors that have large societal learning benefits taking into account both the direct learning and the cross-sector uh, learning, uh, cross-sectoral spillovers. You can write down a, a precise formula for the, the optimal subsidies. Well, unfortunately, many emerging markets, developing countries, can't do this anymore. They can't do what uh, East Asian countries did because there are restrictions. And some of the countries ignore that, but, but in general, they do worry about that. And that has led them to try to use other mechanisms. And one ex mechanism that is now more common is exchange rate policy. Exchange rate policy makes your, makes your exports uh, uh, cheaper, makes your imports more expensive, and that encourages exports and, and discourages imports and promotes the industrial sector. Well. Uh, in fact, some people think it's a particularly good way of doing it because it's broad-based. It doesn't mean it means that you don't have to pick particular subsectors. You're just saying we're going to encourage the industrial sector as a whole and let the market pick out which ones are the best, and avoids the problems posed by the WTO restrictions. In the case, if you're China, if, if you're China, you'll get lectured by the United States about exchange rate manipulation. Um, but if you're uh, Germany or if you're other countries, you don't get that lecture. So um, it depends on who you are, and if you're small, you probably won't get that lecture from the United States anyway. What is interesting, actually, about this is that you can show that the benefits of learning can be so large that it can even pay to have a perpetual current account surplus. That is to say, one of the things that's peculiar about a surplus is that you're not spending all your revenue. You're putting money in a bank account, but you're not spending it. But the learning benefits are so large from expanding the industrial sector that, in fact, uh, it can be worthwhile to do this. But even if it weren't desirable to do it forever, it may be the important element of a, of a development strategy. Uh, and just as a parenthesis, uh, it, this does illustrate the problem with using steady state models. Uh, Arrow's original work, as many of you may know, focused on, on learning by doing arising from uh, investment rather than from production. But, and, and if you have, uh, and, and there can be some kinds of learning that are particularly related to investment, 
And if that's important, you want to change factor prices to encourage more investment. Again, another kind of static distortion that may be uh, important in promoting learning. There are many other implications of this learning theory that I don't uh, uh, have really time to go through uh, today. Uh, but let me just mention one. Um, one of them, and this has to do with the basic organization of the economy. Uh, this is an old question that Coase address, addressed uh, many years ago, and that was, what are the boundaries of the firms? What goes on within the firm, and what determines the relation, what goes on in firms dealing with each other? And Coase put forward the, the argument that what determined the boundaries of firms had to do with transaction costs. And uh, this theory leads to an alternative hypothesis that what determines, the, uh, well, at least a, a factor, the important factor in determining the firms is that the fact that within a firm, knowledge moves more freely. And that knowledge often doesn't move very freely across boundaries of firms. In fact, firms are often set up to create movement of ideas and uh, you know they, people get rotated. The whole structure of a firm is often, and for more dynamic firms, is to try to make them a learning firm, to move knowledge, to help promote the dissemination of knowledge within a firm and the creation of knowledge within a firm. But within a firm, as you do that, you, you, there are costs. Most firms do not use price mechanisms to allocate resources. You know, we all talk about the importance of prices, but actually, most resource allocation, in some sense, I don't know how you quantify it precisely, occurs within firms where prices are not used. That there are other mechanisms for resource allocation, not prices, that are really important for a very large fraction of all transactions. So. The price system does have, they don't even actually use contracts in, in, in many firms. So there are some costs in not using prices and not using contracts, but there are some costs of using the prices and contracts, and particularly it impedes the flow of information and knowledge. And so what this argues is that the design of the firm and the division of activity within the firm and between the firm has as much to do with how that affects learning as with the cosine argument about transaction costs. But I should emphasize that there is no theory that says that the decentralized decision about the organization within a firm has any optimality properties to it. So that the notion that the, you know, the, the, the notion that the market is in any way efficient is, is uh, just has no validity within this context. Well, this is another example of second best e economics, but whenever one talks about innovation, one is in the world uh, of second best economics. Um, and it's a little bit ironical because many people on the right talk about the strong argument for the market is it's innovation. <laughs> and their belief that the market maximizes innovation. But there is no intellectual support to that argument, that, that is to say, no intellectual support to the argument that it optimizes in doing that. 
There is a, the Eric de Brew model that talked about how it, how it optimizes in a world in which there's no innovation. But that, of course, is not um, uh, uh, our concern. Let me um, skip through. Uh, uh, well, there are some political economy objections uh, to the kinds of our, uh, industrial to industrial policies. Uh, Max says, ideal government intervention might improve matters, but the real world inventions often do not. Uh, well, these political economy objections may be true, but the conclusion is based not on economic analysis, but on political analysis. And the political analysis is typically more simplistic than economic analysis. Uh, in particular, uh, the argument for liberalization is itself a political agenda. Uh, and the argument for liberalization is never perfectly applied. And the asymmetric application can have adverse welfare effects. Um, the uh, uh, example of that, obviously, was the uh, liberalization financial sector, liberalization deregulation, uh, which clearly was a politically driven agenda and which had enormous, because it was not well done, because it was driven by special interest, it wound up with a distorted economy uh, that, that has not neither been stable nor efficient. Um, one of the questions is, uh, what is the direction of innovation? Uh, to what end? Well, much of the innovation in advanced industrial economies has been directed towards saving labor. And uh, both in developing countries and actually increasingly in developed countries, this seems a little curious. You know, I've been uh, watching around our neighborhood in New York. Uh, uh, this, we're a little lagging what happened in London, but, but we are replacing low-skilled checkout tellers, uh, checkout clerks in, in, in grocery stores and drug stores with machines. And you might say, isn't that peculiar? Uh, in a world in which we have clearly uh, millions of people unemployed, that we would decide to spend a lot of money making more people unemployed. But that's our innovation system. Well, that highlights that something is wrong with our innovation system. And, uh, and what, what, part of what is wrong is that market prices don't really reflect scarcity. If we had market prices reflecting scarcity, where would our innovation really be directed? Well, the real problem right now is the environment global warming, uh, uh, scarcity of natural resources. But the problem is that because we underprice these natural resources, there's very little incentive in a market economy to save on these natural resources. And so uh, we, uh, we, we, uh, the, the private sector directs innovation in the wrong way. Uh, of course, these environmental impacts are important for all countries, but I, in many ways, they are especially important for developing countries, particularly developing countries with high density populations. There's a general point here, which I, I, I think, particularly in a lecture uh, in uh, honor of uh, Marcia, we should talk about, is what matters is not GDP, but the quality of life, well-being, and individual capabilities. And that's the kind of thing that we should be focusing on and enhancing. 
Um, what that entails and how it can be increased should and can be a subject of rational inquiry. Uh, and it's been an area in which uh, Mark just made major contribution. It was a subject of the International Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and uh, Social Progress that Amarch and I worked on together. Well, so far I've been spending a lot, uh, uh, focused my attention on, on the question of um, uh, how do we create a learning economy? And there are lots of aspects of this that I can't go into. In fact, every aspect of, of economic policy has an effect on learning because it affects decisions of, you know, uh, 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 on uh, 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 investments, uh, it affects the sectoral composition. Um, so what one needs to do, once you start looking at the economy through the lens of a learning society or a learning economy, uh, you really have to re-examine every element of economic policy and to reassess the impact. But I want to go on, uh, in, maybe in, in the tradition of a march, or going on beyond narrow confines of economics and talk a little bit about uh, how uh, some aspects of, of a learning society and, and what are some of the impediments at a societal level uh, to learning. And there are many aspects uh, uh, of this, um, but, and I'm going to talk, because uh, my time is very limited in a fairly abstract way, but let me try to summarize the view. That, that is that our perceptions, beliefs, our perceptions, beliefs about the world, example are whether we believe in the neoclassical model or not, affect our choices, we, we do. The fact that uh, there was a belief in Europe that uh, all you needed to do to make an economy successful uh, was to keep inflation low and that all you needed to do to make the euro successful was to uh, not have too big of a deficit uh, led to certain decisions that were calamitous. Um, and uh, um, so our perceptions affect actions, and our perceptions are in fact uh, shaped by our cognitive frames. And this is uh, really important, um, that the way we process information uh, is actually affected by our beliefs. Very different view than the rational expectations, and there's a lot of support in psychology for this. Uh, this uh, um, uh, the view, for instance, that uh, uh, it's called the confirmatory bias, that, that what we, when we get information that's not consistent with our prior beliefs, we discount it. And the result of that is we don't see it even. One example of this was uh, I was at, uh, uh, in 2008 in the uh, uh, January 2008, I was at the World Economic Forum giving a talk. It was just the beginning of the economic crisis. The bubble broke in 2007. Many of us saw that, in fact, we were going, that that was going to lead to the collapse of the financial system. It actually hadn't happened yet, but the writing, I thought, was on the wall. And um, uh, I gave uh, uh, a talk in which I explained 
the bubble, the breaking of the bubble, how the policies of the Fed, of the central banks had, had made things worse. And there in the front row in the audience were uh, a whole group of, of central bankers. And uh, one of them raised their hand and said, who could have foreseen this? <laughs> you know, uh, said, you know, nobody, nobody saw this coming. Well, interestingly, also in another part of the front row were about three or four of the five economists who did foresee it. And they rose, the hand, rose their hands and said, uh, we did. And we said it here at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, the year before. But what was so clear about that, while they said it, and they, some of them said it very loudly, uh, you couldn't have yelled it more, more clearly, the central bankers couldn't hear it. They discounted that information because it wasn't consistent with their model of the world. Their model of the world is markets are efficient, efficient markets don't have bubbles, therefore there are no bubbles, therefore we don't have to worry about a bubble, <laughs> and therefore we don't have to do anything about the bubble. So their frame was so strong that they could not receive the information. And we, you know, we, we debated, was there other th anything else that we could have done? I think uh, the view I had, and I think the others who were this small group of people who had been yelling in the previous meetings was, no, there was not much, you know, you, could, you can, you, you, as the old expression, <laughs> you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Uh, you can explain these things, but if they can't see it, um, they won't see it. And the fact is, th there's a, a lot of evidence in psychology that this is actually the way people always behave. And what's so interesting is the cognitive frame in economics denies psychology. They said people are rational, that they process all the information. But of course, not in this world. Maybe there's another planet in which people <laughs> behave that way, but in the world in which we live, that's not the way the world works. But of course, if you have that uh, frame, um, you're going to see the world in a very, very different way. It has some really important implications, one of which is you can get uh, what we call equilibrium fictions. That is to say, your beliefs are self-perpetuating. All the evidence as you see it confirms your beliefs. There's no reason for you to change your beliefs because by the time you've processed the information, you say, yes, what I am seeing is consistent with my beliefs. But of course, somebody else has a different set of beliefs and they see the world very differently. And that can get into worlds in which you have two different belief systems. Now, one of the, uh, this, this uh, theory helps also explain societal rigidities, which are often very important in, in, uh, in being an impediment for development. Because it helps explain you know, the, the way we see the world is, uh, you know, the categories that shape our, our, our cognition are social constructions. We don't actually choose them, they're part of the environment. And they, they, um, uh, they change, in fact, uh, very slowly. Um, 
how belief systems change and how those, like governments who seek to liberally change belief systems, should be a, a core part of development analysis. And the rigidities of these beliefs can result in societal rigidities, rigidities in learning. At the same time, there can be events that suddenly change beliefs that lead to periods of very rapid learning. Let me finally talk about democracy and the creation of a learning society. Ideas concerning human rights and democracy have been among the most important in shaping what is and is not acceptable, how we see the world. And it's interesting, over time, one of the advantages of, of, of being an economist as long as I've been is that you see how vocabularies change, how people see the world differently. 45 years ago, nobody talked about words like transparency or information. Now they are part of everyday uh, vocabulary. But one aspect of dem democracy and, de uh, and democratic ideals is that they question authority. Um, and that questioning of authority is, of course, the same frame of mind which is essential for creating a dynamic learning economy and uh, learning society. If you always accept what you, what you believe, what, what you inherited, inherited beliefs, you're not going to learn. Another way of putting it is, if your prior beliefs you hold with 100%, uh, there's no way you can learn because all of the new information uh, is discounted. There's nothing that will change your beliefs. Now, we've seen a remarkable degree of evidence of um, that kind of rigidity in some parts of the economics profession. Um, you would have thought that the economic crisis would have led some people to be, who believed that economies were always efficient and markets always were perfectly and stable to question those beliefs. I mean, after all, there was a crisis. But it's remarkable how, how many economists have been resistant to changing their beliefs. Even the notion, there's one Nobel Prize winner has been going around explaining that he doesn't understand why people are so upset by unemployment. <laughs> because his view is that people are just enjoying leisure. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people want to have more vacations than others. And this happens to be a time when 50% of the young people in Spain are enjoying leisure. <laughs> And, you know, he doesn't quite exp explain why there was more demand for leisure now than there used to be, but he can't explain why people decided to have a hula hoop, uh, you know, that was a, a fad. There are all kinds of fads that go around, and economists can't explain that. Uh, that's beyond economics, but there is this uh, fad for, for leisure. Of course, when I ask them the question, um, Usually when people are on vacation, they're happy. And you talk to the people, the young people in Spain, they're not very happy. And of course his reply is, well, this is a problem for psychiatry, not for economics. <laughs> um, so the idea is that a more open society generates more ideas, a flow of mutations, which provides not only excitement, but the possibility of dynamic evolution rather than the kind of stasis of a rigid society. 
one of my concerns is that there is a link between democracy and, and economic uh, inequality. Non-inclusive growth can lead to non-democratic societies. Even if in the long run a more dynamic society benefits most members of society, in the short run there can be and normally will be losers. And one of the problems is that quite often the people at the top, people who have more political influence, don't see things in a what might be called a enlightened self-interest or a self-interest rightly understood, but more in a narrow self-interest. Um, and uh, the result of that is that they advocate policies uh, that benefit themselves but don't help others. There is a view on the right that all you need to worry about is growth. And if you get growth, everybody benefits. But the evidence is overwhelming is that trickle-down economics doesn't work. And one of the themes of the my book, I knew the price of inequality that I'm talking about tomorrow, is that uh, in many countries, trickle-down economics has not been working. In the United States, for instance, we've had growth, but per median income, people in the middle, median income today is lower than it was 15 years ago. And the median income of a male full-time worker is lower than it was 40 years ago. So that uh, the benefits of the growth and technology that have occurred have not been shared in our society. But even worse, not only doesn't trickle-down economics work, some of the policies, particularly some of the Washington consensus policies that I've been so critical, are actually not only are they not pro-poor, they are often anti-poor. And that's a long story, but, but uh, they actually work to the disadvantage of the poor. Um, so the problem is that today democratic processes can be shaped and there are incentives on the part of some, particularly at the top, to maintain existing inequities. And that's particularly a problem I feel strongly in the United States, but it's a problem in many democracies because money is important. In the United States we have uh, this recent Supreme Court decision that said there can be unbridled campaign spending. And uh, many of you know the, the, the anticipation is that this coming election will cost uh, the campaign spending will be a, an order of magnitude of a billion dollars. And that means if you don't have a lot of money or if you don't raise a lot of money, uh, you can't compete. But if you raise money, you can have to raise money from the people at the top, and that means you're beholden to them. They view it not as charity but as investments, and the banks got a lot of returns in their investment. In fact, they got a lot higher returns on their political investments than they did on their financial investments. <laughs> um, so the worry is that democratic processes can lead, under these kinds of circumstances, to the antithesis of an open and transparent society. In this view, then, the critique of non-inclusive growth goes beyond that it is a waste of a country's most valuable resource, its human talent. Uh, it, it, it goes beyond the notion that it fails to ensure that everyone lives up to his or her uh, abilities, um, that it actually distorts the political, that when you have non-inclusive growth, it distorts the political process, and that leads to poor economic performance, a vicious circle of more inequality 
and uh, 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 an economy that, from most perspectives, is not performing well. To put it another way, government needs to play an important role in any economy, correcting pervasive market failures, but especially in the creative economy and the learning economy that I've been focusing on. In a society with very little inequality, the only role of the state is to provide collective goods and correct market failures, and there'll be broad support for that because people can understand that's what, what you need to do to make our well-being better. But when there are large inequalities, interests differ. And distributed battles will inevitably rage. To prevent redistribution, the role of government is circumscribed. I think it's one of the reasons a lot of people think the right in the United States likes our political gridlock. Uh, they want a government that can't do anything other than uh, argue. Uh, but in circumscribing government, it means that its ability to perform the positive roles is also circumscribed. And there are a whole variety of things that we can talk about uh, uh, ways in which you circumscribe government. One of them has to do with a uh, uh, wrong institutional structure for the central bank uh, or budget uh, uh, battles in the United States, a whole set of things. But anyway, there's an adverse dynamic with um, more inequality leading to more circumscribed government, leading to more inequality in the long run, more unstable and lower growth. And some fear that the U.S. and perhaps some other countries have embarked on this adverse uh, dynamic. And one of the things, again, I'm going to talk about uh, tomorrow is that there is actually in the United States now less equality of opportunity and more inequality than not only in some countries of old Europe, but actually in any of the advanced industrial countries. Uh, and it's a real big departure from the U.S. image of itself. Um, as I said, the general principle of a learning society have broad implications for every area of policy, financial and capital market liberalization, design and monetary policy and institutions, intellectual property regimes, investment treaties, taxation, uh, legal frameworks for corporate governance, bankruptcy, in fact, as I say, the entire economic regime. Well, let me just try to summarize. What I've tried to do is to provide a lens through which one can examine these and other policy choices facing developing countries in the coming years. Countries might like to pretend that they could avoid matters of industrial policies or avoid the issues that I've talked about of shaping an economy, trying to make a learning society. And there was this notion of neoliberal doctrines that said that these are issues that ought to just be left to the market. But there are, that one can't do that. No, one can't do that for two reasons. First of all, markets don't exist in a vacuum. All markets operate according to rules, regulations, laws. We shape markets. In the United States, when we have a bankruptcy law that gives priority to derivatives over any other uh, creditor, we are, that's an industrial policy. It was encouraging the growth of the financial sector. When we didn't enforce competition policy against the banks, when we didn't enforce fraud laws, when we didn't hold 
our um, uh, financial uh, 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 CEOs accountable when they violated basic principles of justice, throwing people out of their homes, signing affidavits, saying that they had looked at their at at their what they owed and they owed money when they hadn't looked at that, lying to the courts, throwing people out of their homes who didn't owe any money. When you have a legal framework like that, you encourage an overbloated financial sector. And that distorts the economy. And that means you get innovation in the financial sector. Innovation that encourages the creation of products that do not lead to faster growth, but financial products which circumvent regulations and lead to more economic stability, instability. So we had an industrial policy in the United States and in England. But it was an industrial policy that encouraged the wrong kind of learning. They learned, but it was destructive learning. So you can't avoid the issue. That was the first point I want to make. And then secondly, in a fundamental sense, governments are going to have to make investments in infrastructure, in education. And the question is, what kind of investments are you going to make? Well, how are you going to design your education system? And how you answer those questions affects the kind of society you're creating and the kind of economy that you're creating. So the choices that m one makes in each of these arenas will inevitably shape the economy, politics, and society, for better or for worse, for the decades to come. There is an agenda, which I call the social democratic agenda, I can't go into here, is an agenda that I believe that advances simultaneously all of these objectives, that one can have more growth, more equality, and more democracy. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Stiglitz, for a very inspiring lecture. Surely you set the bar very high for the rest of the series. <laughs> I think we now have about very little time for a few questions from the audience and then a special guest. So there's one there, we'll take a cluster. There's one up there. Hi, uh, Rafe Martin. I just wanted to ask that given you are chief economist at the World Bank and yet still, as far as I understand, they still follow kind of neoclassical static models for their policies, what hope is there for changing the policies and the basis for the policies of the World Bank and the WHO and the IMF? <laughs> uh, down here? Problem of cognitive frames. Over there at the back? Uh, hello, my name is uh, Misha Klamesh. I'm a journalist. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Stieglitz, for uh, that lecture. Um, one question which has, been, uh, which, I've, which, one, which has been itching me and I can't scratch is um, uh, Rajan, the former chief economist of the IMF. I can never pronounce his first name. I apologize. I remember his first name. In his very good book, Fault Lines, uh, in 2010, he uh, made the observation which struck me that in the 91 re uh, recession with Bush Senior and in the 2001 recession 
the dot-com recession with Clinton, that those were so-called jobless um, recessions. Um, and he said in his book that any recession uh, since the Great Depression or since records about that time, that um, the amount of jobs lost since the depression, that the recession began took uh, eight months for them to recover those jobs. But, in the, but then in the 91 recession and the 2001 recession, um, it took much longer than eight months to recover those jobs. And I think Rajan said in, in his book, he quotes that it, was, it took like 23 months to get, the, to get the jobs back, even though it was a very mild recession. And he said that, um, that no economists had, no, as, as far as he knew up to that point, was published in 2010, were able to answer this question, why, did it, you know, why were these jobless recoveries? So my question to you is, um, you know, why, were they, why did those recoveries take longer than eight months? What was special about the 91 recession and 2001 recession? And do we actually know What's the current scholarship saying? Thank you. This one just here. Professor Diglitz, um, thank you. My name is Simon Davison. Um, just a question or your thoughts on um, uh, a learning, the learning dynamic as applied to institutions, the institutions and the, and the individuals who are making policy. How do you see them learning? I mean, if they're going to engender a learning society, um, surely there, there needs to be some learning dynamic happening there. So how do you see that? What, what are the impediments to that learning? And one final question at the back. Um, related to that, and uh, he was talking about institutions affecting learning. And is there a process of complex learning where institutions can also evolve? Or is it, again, a, rather than just a constraint or a, uh, something that a system has to deal with? Yeah, um, the, uh, there actually has been some change in uh, uh, World Bank and IMF. Uh, it's not been monotonic. Uh, there was a very bad period at the World Bank under Wolfwicks. Um, <laughs> And uh, things have gotten somewhat better, uh, and we're hopeful uh, going forward. Um, in terms of the particular issue that I've been talking about, there actually has been a dramatic uh, uh, change. Justin Lin, who is the chief economist, uh, his major issue, uh, major, uh, uh, the major topic that he's been advocating uh, has been uh, industrial policy. And uh, one element of that is related to, to this learning econ society. He, he views it, I think he gave a lecture here, or, but, but, but uh, he sees it a little bit differently than I do, but the, the overall framework that markets do not do well in the developmental transformation um, is one that we agree on, and we've actually been having uh, some uh, round tables over, over these uh, issues, both in Washington and, and, and next week in Johannesburg. Um, the IMF uh, has also changed a lot, um, most dramatically under Strauss-Kahn, where uh, he gave a, a, a speech where uh, he was very clear that markets on their own are not stable. He came out in favor of, uh, the IMF came out in favor of capital controls, that cross-border capital flows uh, could be destabilizing. But even more interestingly, he's 
argued that the IMF needs to be concerned with inequality because he says, said inequality leads to instability. And instability was the concern, economic instability was the concern of the IMF and therefore they had to be concerned with inequality. Now, not everybody at the IMF is on board. Um, and uh, ex ex within the institution it's been uh, contentious and, and some of the programs they've uh, n not learned, and this goes back, I'll come to the institutional learning, um, not everybody in the institution has learned uh, 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 the message, uh, but, but at least there, there is uh, some change going on. Uh, the question, uh, the issue of how, how institutions learn was really the kind of thing I was trying to focus on when I talked about firms, that uh, one aspect of firm learning is porous boundaries within the firm. So that, and, and learning firms, and there's a whole area of, of, in business school you wor worry about this, worry about how you make sure ideas permeate the institution. How do you question uh, what is going on and question even the authority? Because one of the problems a lot of firms, and this is one of the things that, you know, when you go from academia to a place like uh, the World Bank, uh, you realize academia has a very, it doesn't have any hierarchy. Uh, the uh, president and the chairman, uh, people don't pay much attention to them. I mean, in fact, uh, you know, they, they look a little askance at that. The president of the World Bank has a lot of influence. Uh, people at least pretend to pay attention to them. Uh, whereas people don't pretend to pay attention to the president of, 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 of Columbia. I mean, it just, you know, in fact, so, so there's a very different organizational culture um, that uh, one has to deal with the problem of uh, hierarchy. You know, authority is an obstacle to learning. And that was the point about, about democracy. And how do you create democratic learning institutions. The interesting uh, set of work uh, that's been done about creating a, a, a more democratic workplace where there's some work that contends that at least in some areas, workplaces where there's more participation in the decision making are more efficient. Um, partly because there's more learning going on. So. Um, the other question um, was a really interesting one, not that directly related to, to uh, only indirectly related to my talk, but let me, uh, I have a, a, a PhD student who's working uh, on exactly uh, that issue. Not only, by the way, I should say, this recovery is the most jobless. If you look at the, each of the recoveries, they've been getting worse. But it's not only jobless in terms of months, jobless, relative to G GDP recovery. In other words, if you ask, as GDP recovers, you would have expected so many jobs to be created. Okay, there's a question about how long it takes GDP to recover, but given that the GDP is recovered, are jobs being created to reflect the, the, the re rebound of GDP? Now, what's true is it's different across different countries, and America is right now performing a, uh, not as well as some other countries. Um, uh, Germany has, has been doing actually quite well in, in, in this respect. Um, some of it has to do with 
um, technological change, some of it has to do with Fed policy. Uh, and let me give you uh, an example of the quandary that we are now facing. I talked before, uh, mentioned before about the fact that uh, we're replacing low-skill uh, checkout clerks with machines. One of the reasons we're doing that is innovation. Another reason we're doing that is that uh, the interest rate for those who can get loans is zero. The cost of capital is very low. So wages have gone down a little bit, but the cost of capital has gone down a lot. And if you write down a vintage capital model, you know, that where, where you're making a decision today about what machine to buy, this goes back to Marx's early work in the choice of technique in a way, that the choice of technique is a very capital intensive technique. It pays you to buy a very capital intensive machine because the cost of capital is zero. I'm exaggerating, but it's very low. So the Fed is encouraging the creation of a jobless recovery. I'm not sure I want that to be quoted. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's true. Uh, unintentional, unintentional. Uh, but the, the, the motivation is they want to encourage investment. But the investment that they're encouraging, because there's no demand, is replacement of old machines with new machines that don't use workers. And so uh, we are creating the conditions that will make a jobless recovery uh, more likely. And that also has to do with the sectoral composition. Uh, the student mind has been looking at this, you know, looking at that, that some sectors, this is, is more likely. It, it, as the economy becomes more high-tech, uh, it is more likely, as you recover, you're recovering, you're leaving the sectors that were labor-intensive, you're recovering into the sectoral transformation into sectors that are less labor-intensive. So we're going through, a, a, the, the, the recovery itself is, is part of that transformation. I'm not sure, he, he's very nervous. Uh, he doesn't believe, he worries about intellectual property rights and that, that uh, no, I, um, uh, but if you talk to me later, I can tell you, okay. <laughs> I think it's time just for one question. Yes. Um, uh, you raised the issue right at the end about a social democratic alternative. It seems to me the burden of your argument is that unless we have some form of compulsory redistribution, we cannot offset the tendency for markets to, to, to intensify inequality. And it seems to me that that is absolutely true. What I'm left with is the question of where this political message is going to go to, who in our society now is going to drive this social democratic revolution, because all of the things that you're talking about is what was done in the West after the, se after the Second World War and which basically rescued it from dissolution. And that was because we had a powerful democratic, social democratic movement backed by a large-scale industrial working class. That working class has now disappeared. You talk about we need this and we need that. Who is this we 
and how are you going to communicate this message to them <laughs> and get them to actually do what you very rightly say needs to be done if we're going to get out of this hole that we're in and we're still digging right now. Well, that's the whole point. That was an advertisement for my new book. <laughs> it wasn't a paid advertisement. No, the, point, the point of this is it, it's not going to be easy. I view this as a very difficult political battle. Uh, but uh, one of the main messages is that, uh, two of the main messages is that uh, uh, all of us, including the people at the top, are paying a very high price for this inequality, that we could have more growth and more equality in which most people, vast, vast majority would benefit, including many of those at, at the top. So um, the hope is that we still live in a democracy and that by persuading enough people uh, no one book is going to do it. No, no, you know, no one seminar is going to do it. But by and as the problems get worse and the manifestations get worse, you know, as you know, I view the banks are helping us along. The scandal that broke today um, is is certainly helpful in pe making people understand that a lot of the wealth at the top doesn't come from contributions to making our economy more efficient, but comes from people. Uh, playing games with other people and and is rank seeking of the worst kind and actually weakening our economy so by now i think there's a general understanding that a lot of the inequality in the united, you know in the united states the uk and other western countries is not productivity enhancing but is actually welfare wealth destroying and as that happens, and, and as I say, as, 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 as the banks help us along in making this message clear, I think that uh, hopefully the right po political leaders will come along that will translate that into political action. Well, thank you very much, Joe. And just before we finish, I'd like to ask Amartya if he would say a few words. I don't know whether you're going to come up here or whether you'll want to say them from where you are. Wonderful to hear Joe. As, as always, I learned a lot. <laughs> I was trying to think whether there's an occasion when I've heard Joe and not learned anything. I couldn't offhand think of it, but if I think hard, maybe I will find an occasion <laughs> at that time. Just before the um, talk when, uh, in the green room when uh, Shirley Williams and I was talking, um, Joe was trying to come into it, and I told him to concentrate on preparing his lecture, which he was doing earlier, because I told him it was a very serious occasion. He <laughs> ought to give a great and perfect lecture. Well, that he certainly has. And, however, there were some doubts raised, because as Joe said, if I didn't... I mean, I was expecting him to give a perfect lecture, and Joe said that if, I, if something happens which is, doesn't conform to what we expected, 
I may not notice it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to go and see that whether there's some element of imperfection that I missed out because of my <laughs> antecedent prejudice on this subject. But it's really absolutely wonderful. Joe uh, says that uh, we met in India first, but I think first time we met in 61, in MIT, you walked by, I was teaching there, the visiting assistant professor. I think you were under some difficulty because you were not finding one of your shoes <laughs> and you were looking for them. But uh, the story had a happy ending. He did find his shoes <laughs> by the time he, 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 he went away. It's also a very nice occasion for me to be in this room. It's a, it's in a, it's a room in which I often lecture. I get my inaugural lecture and I used to give lectures and principles more or less from here. So it's absolutely great. And there are many other ways it's very very touching for me to um, to see the well, the, the people who have been organising the Send lecture before it moved here, uh, Ray Schoenfield, Aubrey Silverstone, who actually taught me economics many years ago at, uh, at Cambridge, being here. There others. There have been other like this is the first of the LSE lecture. There were earlier lectures, of course, given by. Nick Stern, not unknown in LSE. Uh, <laughs> I think Lord Brown of Maddingley was another who gave, uh, I think, the former Prime Minister of, of um, Thailand, Anand, gave a lecture. So those who organized it and all those who supported that, and I know that they're all kind of biased because they belong to educational institutions with which I've been associated. So I appreciate very much that kind of um, connection. Now, I think Joe's thing, um, it is an absolutely splendid talk. It's interesting that you see knowledge has concentrated Joe's attention for a very long time. But there's an odd asymmetry between what he was doing today in terms of focus and what he did earlier. You see, there was an earlier thing, he emphasized the lack of, how lack of knowledge, unshared knowledge, could lead to market failures of various kinds. And asymmetric information, in which, by the way, his um, novel, with which no, his novel was connected, uh, indicated how the buyer and the seller may not have the same kind of information, all the kind of differences that arise from it. So that's one aspect of it, unshared knowledge. And of course, the other is what we're emphasizing today, that knowledge being shared and it becomes a public knowledge. And both these are important elements uh, of understanding economics in general, and since he was focusing particularly on development economics, development economics in particular. Just to give a few examples, and one of the problems, and a, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, Jean Dres and I, we from time to time write a book on India, and we're trying to write one now, <laughs> and uh, Joe's uh, uh, talk was very relevant for that. Uh, but uh, you see, the, uh, the, but his earlier things on asymmetric information has relevance for some types of problems. For example, the, in the Indian economy has moved towards greater reliance on private health care at a bottom level without guaranteeing uh, health care for all uh, in, at, at, at that level. And it, somehow a lot of people think that this is inefficiency on grounds, as Joe said, that the belief that the market economy is efficient is, is rampant. But the fact is that, aside from many other failures, some of which you discussed, I think the, the poor peasant who is trying to get his child over to a doctor 
without knowing what is ailing the child, without knowing what the doctor knows, and the number of people who pretend to be doctors who are actually not doctors <laughs> is quite large. And they often charge quite high fees. So the combination of, um, uh, of, um, um, uh, of being um, bogus doctors uh, and overcharging doctors can actually could be a very easy source of ruination of many of the poorer families. That's a big phenomenon. To a lesser extent, it applies even to premature privatization of education in school. Because again, you might, even if you do vouchers, which you typically don't, but even if you do vouchers, the amount of information you have about the schools, especially if you're first generation uh, children and your parents didn't go to school, didn't know anything about it. I think it's really one ought to emphasize how the unsharing of knowledge remains a basic problem in development. And then again, of course, there is the public knowledge business, which he was particularly focusing on. He's quite right that Sue Peter did discuss it, but I think it's, I have to say, I'm not a great admirer of Sue Peter, because basically he, I think, did a fair amount of general statement on it. The main understanding comes from contemporary economists, including Joe, but as he also made Bob Solo, Kenaro, um, uh, and, and Nick Caldo, and others who had written on that. I mean, one of the things I found when I went back to Delhi in 1960, was one of the early PhD students of mine, a man called D.P. Chaudhry, he was working on the impact of education on agricultural productivity. And one of the oddities was that if you look at a village or a, or a, or a district and looked at families which had educated persons and families that didn't, productivity didn't differ very much. On the other hand, if you change the unit to villages, then you found bigger differences. And if you took a bigger unit, cluster of villages, then even more. Basically what it means is that the access to knowledge, which may come from other people, even when you're not educated, makes a big difference. That's the kind of tribute to the public knowledge aspect of it. And if, if you think about a situation where there are a lot of people uneducated, but they're quite close to people, who are educated, I think, to use a kind of old topological concept, the set of educated people being dense in the set of, the, of people in general. It generates a kind of impact which you wouldn't see otherwise. Exactly the same thing you see in the impact of education on reduction of fertility, the impact of education on the reduction of child mortality, Again, you see that your unit as the individual, the micro unit, isn't serving you well, mainly because of what Joe was discussing, or at least first part of the paper, public knowledge. So it was really thrilling to um, see um, how, um, I mean, I, I won't comment on so many other things that he raised which were um, extraordinarily important. Um, I think, um, the uh, uh, um, uh, given that I, actually I won't say anything more on that because I think I ought to stop but I have to say that I am obviously overwhelmed that the lecture should be called by me I sometimes uh, have the illusion of becoming well known in the world uh, <laughs> Joe has contributed to it I think the one occasion when I had a very clear illusion on that happened in Hanover where I had gone for a conference and I was going home, 
and uh, there was a light, red, red light against pedestrians. There was absolutely no car in sight. After a little while, with all my Indian background, uncorrected by English experience, I decided to take the plunge and cross it. <laughs> and there was a gentleman on the other side who looked at me, and he said, um, uh, Professor Sen, he told me, um, here in Germany you wait for the light to change color. <laughs> so I was, that was bad news for me, but I was very happy that I become so well known. So I said that, uh, but I thought I ought to be nice and patronizing. So I said, well, where have we met before? I looked at him encouragingly. And he said, no, I don't know at all who you are, but you're wearing your conference hat. <laughs> So there are many different ways of getting well-known, but I would prefer any time the method of hearing Joe giving a lecture connected with Nigeria. I'm really very grateful, and very grateful, of course, for Mary uh, uh, and, 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 the, and the other uh, uh, Ariana for organizing this thing. Mary is an old friend, Ariana might become one with it, unless she is careful. So, uh, it's a wonderful location, especially to be able to see the great location for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sure. Very nice. What were the records to the stuff about the knowledge? I'm sure we can all spend hours talking and listening to these two, but unfortunately our time is drawing to a close. So again, thank you very much for a very inspiring lecture and a very inspiring answer, and we look forward to more lectures in the series. And a quick announcement that Professor Siglitz will be signing books here on stage, and I believe there are books on sale outside. So, so Sam. Uh, and so is Professor Sen, of course. <laughs> you wouldn't expect otherwise, would you? <laughs> so thank you. Thank you again so much for a wonderful evening. <laughs>